ask that you would turn to Acts chapter 2. If you remember, I was not able to finish my sermon uh, last week because I only got to verse 4 instead of to 13. So you will know where we're going to go. We're going to do part 2, or should I say point 2 of my sermon from last week. And before we get started, I think it would be wise, it would behoove us, using fancy words, to pray. So bow your heads with me as we seek the Lord in prayer this morning. Uh, and, and remember what happened about 11, no, 20-something years ago, 21, um, as we remember the domino effect that it had in my personal life and in the life of our country, as many young men and women went to war and died. Father, we lift our voices to you this morning uh, in remembrance for a long two decades of war that we have experienced as a nation. Lord, the, the soul of our nation was deeply affected by what happened on September 11th many, many years ago. Uh, Father, we know that there are those in this room who don't even have a... It was the Pearl Harbor of, of my generation. So, Father, we, we lift up the families who are mourning the loss of loved ones from that day. Lord, we lift um, our nation before you. Father, we are a mess, uh, full of sin and iniquity, and we confess our sinfulness before you. Father, have mercy on us. Uh, restore us to your glory. Uh, Lord, may the gospel spread throughout this land. Lord, I lift up the churches in this area. May the gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed in every pulpit in this city. Father, we pray for Sierra Vista. We, we know this is a, a city that is in desperate need of the good news of Christ, and we want to be agents of change for this community and point them to Jesus Christ. Lord, may we have a revival that we that the likes of which have not been seen before. Uh, may people turn from their sins and turn to you, the living Lord, and to have uh, you as their greatest treasure. Father, we pray these things. As we approach your text, Father, we are uh, reminded about the power of the Spirit uh, in the lives of the early church and the, the change that we see happening from there. So, Father, I pray for wisdom. I pray for me, that my words and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Lord, I pray for the ears of this congregation and their hearts to be open to what your word has to say. Help us point to Jesus Christ as the King, the Sovereign, that we can come and worship the risen King. As I uh, look at this passage, what a message that is brought to the nations. Father, strengthen us for this sermon. And in your name we pray. Amen. I told you guys to go to Acts, and I didn't even open up my, my book to Acts. Good thing I have a bookmark. Our failure as a church is a failure of power. Our failure as a church is a failure of power. I think this is true of our failure as a church in this nation. I think it's true of our failure as a church individual, and I believe it's also true of our failure as Christians, members of the body of Christ. We have programs, we have pastors, we have people, and we have pennies, but we are missing the primary ingredient, power. The church in Acts had less than we have today, 
yet they had the one thing necessary, power. What turned the world upside down was power. Power. What brought sinful man to repentance? Power. I wonder, do you have that power in you? Do you have the power of the living Christ residing in your heart? Does the power of Christ compel you to witness to your neighbors? Where is the fire? Where is the hunger for the lost? I think if we're all honest, we don't live up to our expectations. came to Christ, were you excited? Did you run to the first people that you saw and, and proclaim the risen Christ to them? I think there are five areas that you must cultivate if you would have the power of the early church. Number one is you must be born by the Spirit. You must be born again. You must be converted. If you are unregenerate, you will not have the power at all. Second, you must have in your goal, your purpose, to point to Christ. Third, you must pray without ceasing. Four, you must proclaim the Word. And five, you must praise Him for His wonderful works. The Holy Spirit empowers all of these. And we're going to see how the Holy Spirit empowers all of these in the life of the early church in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles open, let's go ahead and read our passage for this morning. And we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, even though we won't be discussing 1 through 4 like we did last week. When the day of Pentecost had been fulfilled, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring, listen to this, the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. Man, the power of the gospel proclaimed in multiple languages, yet some sneered. So last week, the Holy Spirit's arrival empowers the mission of the church by being a gift to the church and bearing witness to the church. This week, we see that the coming of the Holy Spirit 
was an amazing event in salvation history, fulfilling prophecy, and then empowering the mission of the church. The Holy Spirit bears witness to the church in Jerusalem. The large part of our passage here points to the impact that the Holy Spirit's empowering had right from the start. And we see two things follow this magnificent proclamation. We see amazement, and we see skepticism. Interesting. So, to start with, let's look at the audience. 5 through 8 begins to describe who are hearing what the disciples, the 120 disciples in the upper room, as they came out singing, Come and worship Christ the risen King. I don't think they sang that exact song, but they were singing songs proclaiming who Christ was. And so they, the, the audience were these Jews, the abiding Jews. We have the Jews from all over who have returned to Jerusalem, either for the festival of Pentecost or other reasons. The, the word here literally means to dwell in verse 5. The, the staying in Jerusalem, they were dwelling in Jerusalem. Luke emphasizes the universal width by saying from every nation, essentially from all over the known world. And these Jews, they happen to be pretty pious. As you look here, you see that they are devout people. God-fearing is another way that we have described it. Devout is always used of Jews in Luke and Acts, never of Gentiles, the word that's being used here for devout. Now, we hear God-fearing for the Gentiles often, but here, this word is pious Jews, these devout Jews. And also, they're linguistically varied. In 6, verse 6, it says, When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. The sound that drew them either was the different tongues of these people that came out proclaiming the magnificent works of God, or it was that wind, that violent sound of the wind. I like to think that this event happened in the upper room, and they ran outside and ran towards the temple to proclaim the wonderful works of God, because the temple has had enough space to fit 3,000 people that were there listening at least. And so they are proclaiming, they're singing, come and worship in the language of these people, which is magnificent. It's, it's almost the opposite of the Tower of Babel. They were astounded and amazed. And it's interesting that they were astounded and amazed, but they also have a similar response in verse 12, because they heard them speaking in their own language. They were most astounded that it was the country bumpkins that were able to speak in all these different languages. The Galileans, not just a bunch of fishermen. Not fishermen like we think of in those fishing competitions with the $1,000 boats and the $1,000 fishing rods. No, these are the country bumpkins of the day. But they're speaking in all these varied languages. It's not something that they could have easily learned. And Luke is clear here that the speech was other languages. These are actual languages that they're hearing. Uh, using the word tongue, I think, is a play on the tongues of fire that were overneath. And so we have the list of people groups. Now, this has confused some theologians. 
who might be seeking deeper meaning. I think the variety of places is to point to Jesus' promise that the apostles will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Confusion is what characterizes the original response. The same word used that the Bible uses here is the same word that is used in the Greek translation of the Babel narrative in Genesis 11. Right? God came down and he confused the languages. And these are confused because they're speaking in their own languages. There's a connection there that I think Luke is pointing to. So now we have confusion in the speaking of language from their home areas. And as we look at these languages, 9 through 11 begin to unpack these various areas. So we have these devout Jews. They're people from every nation under heaven. Verse 6, when the sound occurred, a crowd came together, was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. 7 says they were astounded and amazed, saying, look, Aren't these who are speaking country bumpkins, the Galileans? Then verse 8, how is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? And then we have a list of nations. Fifteen locations are being mentioned. Now they create an interesting pattern. And I think they point to fulfillment of prophecy, of Old Testament prophecy. So let's first begin with the East. We have the Parthians, which is modern-day Iran. We have the Medes. We have the Elamites. And then we have Mesopotamia, the Middle East in general. And then we have the center. We have this mention of Judea, which is very odd because isn't Jerusalem in Judea? Why would Luke include Judea? to point to the center, to the middle. Then we have the north. We have Cappadocia, which is central Turkey. We have Pontus, which is more north, north Turkey. We have Asia, which is the coast of Turkey near the Aegean Sea. I keep mispronouncing this name, but it's Phrygia, Phrygia, Phrygia. And then we have Pamphylia, which is the Mediterranean coast of Turkey. So you have the north. So you have the east, you have the north, or the middle, then you have the north. Now we have the south, you have Egypt, Libya near Cyrene, you have Arabia. And then the west, visitors from Rome, Jews and converts, and then the Cretans. It, the new society that Jesus is establishing, the kingdom, has Jerusalem at the center and then the blessings of the kingdom flow from Jerusalem. Isn't it amazing how Luke ordered these things? And it actually reminds me of the book, uh, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, 11 through 12. Let me read that to you. On that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people who survived from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamatha, and the coasts and islands of the west. He will lift up a banner for the nations and gather the dispersed of Israel. He will collect the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Do you see at least a spiritual ingathering that's happening here? Or again, Isaiah 43, 5-7, it says, 
Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. And so we have this gathering from the north and the south and the east and the west with Jerusalem, Judea in the center for this spiritual kingdom. In fact, we hear echoes of the prophecy of Zephaniah 3.9. Zephaniah 3.9 says, For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with a single purpose. Do you know, if you have read through book, the book of Acts, the end of Acts 2, what happens with these people? They have a singular purpose. They're selling parts of their land and giving it to the poor. They have a singular purpose. This is, at least, at the very least, a spiritual fulfillment of prophecy. It's all connected, clearly. But then we have the response to the message, and this is the age-old conundrum. In 11b, without a interpretation of what's going on, the second part of 11, these people are hearing them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. And some were astounded and perplexed, yet others scoffed. What were they declaring? Man, I just love this word, the magnificent acts of God. The mighty acts of God, some translations say. The great acts of God. The Spirit was bearing witness to the acts of God. Sometimes we could say the wonders of God. I think the disciples were probably bursting forth in praise. However, there was no interpretation of the meaning of this sign yet. Leaving the crowd to speculate. Now Peter will enter in and preach a sermon that explains, but not yet. So some wonder, and others are skeptical, thinking that they might be drunk. Now you, uh, you Luke, you, now I'm speaking in tongues, Luke uses this motive often. Without a personal element of faith, the good news is often rejected and people are skeptical. Not everyone receives the good news with joy. It is amazing how the marvelous work of God is met with wonder or skepticism. This is the same thing that we see today. You tell someone something amazing that happened, a miracle that happened in your life, that you were dead in your sin and all of a sudden are now alive in Christ, and they say, well, you're probably drunk. Or you are delusional. There is great skepticism that comes. So even the most spectacular works of God are rejected by those without faith. And we see this theme that continues to play out uh, not only in the book of Acts, but in our world today. Uh, Jesus' words in his parable about Lazarus, that even if someone were to come back from the dead, they wouldn't believe, I think are kind of haunting here. Because even though Christ came back to convince some people, 
You can give them solid ironclad evidence and they will not be convinced. Signs and wonders must be accompanied by faith in the heart of the observer. Yet, Jesus' repeated chastisement of the disciples, have you still no faith? So no matter how much evidence you produce, unless the Spirit cuts to the heart, it will not provide faith. Will it? In the book of Acts, we see the people that heard Peter's sermon were cut to the heart, and they repented. So the question that we want to ask ourselves this morning, I think, is if we attempt to manufacture spiritual results apart from the Holy Spirit, we will fail. Which is why I think the church in America is exhausting. It is powerless because we are trying to manufacture spiritual results with physical means. We have the right mood music. We put a, a fog machine up here. We do everything we can to create an environment. The pastor looks really handsome so that you will love him, and he just talks to you in that silky smooth voice. Right? I don't have that capability, so you guys are just extra blessed. But, that's the only reason you listen to me is because of the Spirit, right? So any attempt that we try to manufacture results or manipulate people into believing will lead to dismal failure. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to be Christ-centered, prayerful, and word-proclaiming and praising. And that's what it looks like here applicationally. First, you must be born of the Spirit. So last week, we briefly talked about the, how the Holy Spirit gives birth. Uh, we, we said John 3 really sums this up. Uh, John, John 3, 5, just as a summary, it says, Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the first step in becoming empowered by the Spirit is to be converted. Uh, we talked a little bit last week about how conversion and the Holy Spirit go together generally. And in the book of Acts, we see the reasons why they were separated, and I explained it, and we'll explain it as we move forward. But normally, normatively, when you are converted, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills you. So you cannot have power if you are unsaved, if you are not a believer. And we are called to respond to God's calling through the Holy Spirit. John 3, 16-18. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's hard when I memorized it in a different translation. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And what I love about this passage is this is the fulfillment of what the, the disciples have been waiting for. They have been waiting for this coming of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was promised by Jesus. And John really, I think, captures the moment. John 14, 16 through 17 says this, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Counselor to be with you forever. He, 
is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit will dwell with you. Wait for him. He is coming. John 14, 26. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. The powerful coming of the Holy Spirit does so many things in the life of the believer. And guess what? The Holy Spirit has come. What a, what a celebrating, a, a thing to celebrate, to praise. So we cannot be empowered by the Holy Spirit unless we are converted or born again. So the question that you must answer is, are you born again? Do you have evidence of the Holy Spirit within you? Is he putting to death your foolish pride? I know he is for me. I spilled coffee all over the place this morning, over and over again. The coffee, not the pride killing, not the coffee. It's not over and over again. The second thing we see is Christ-centered. The Holy Spirit's role is not to, to make signs and wonders all about you as a human, but to point to Jesus Christ. The mission of the church is that of bearing witness to King Jesus. That's why I love this come and worship song so much. Because it says, come and worship the risen King. As I was reading the Psalms this morning, I saw all this language about being under the shadow of His wings and, and how His rule and authority will protect us. And I was like, oh, that's just for ancient Israel. But then I said, you know what? No. King Jesus is my authority and I am under His rule. I can rest in the Psalms because of Jesus. He is in the heavens and His Spirit abides inside of us. And our job then is to declare to this world about Jesus, the King. It's not about anything less than this. We see it in Acts 5. We see it in John 15. We see it in John 16. The Holy Spirit empowers us to point to Jesus Christ. This is something that's really important for you to grasp, especially you young people. Our faith is not to empower you to live your best life now. Right? Jesus is not a tack-on to your identity. Right? Many people in our, in our society are looking for an identity. Right? Oh, I love country music, so I'm going to wear a cowboy hat and wear cowboy boots. I watch that TV show Yellowstone, uh, You Depraved Wretches. Uh, and, and you wear these hats because you have an identity now. Or I live out in the country, so I'm going to live this way or act this way. Or I'm a homesteader, and so I got chickens and eggs. And, you know, anything that we do, we tack on our own identity and so what happens is we come to Christ and we say, well, I'm going to tack that on. And we see this most clearly in the Bible Belt. We see it most clearly where you may not be born again, but you're going to call yourself a Christian because everybody's a Christian. It's a sad, sad thing. So the question you must ask yourself is, are you pointing to Christ? Are you living the Christian life in the power of Christ? When someone looks at you, do they see Christ in your actions? in your words, in your thoughts. When you're driving alone and you get cut off in traffic, what are the words that come out of your mouth? When the Bible says proclaiming Christ, do you know what that means? 
Do you know what it means to proclaim Christ? It is the message of His life, His death, His resurrection and ascension. Just like that song, Come and Worship. It's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what they began to proclaim here at Pentecost. The marvelous works of God, the wonderful works of God, the magnificent works of God. And what was His most magnificent work? Was it the parting of the Red Sea? It was the bringing back to life of someone who was dead for three days. But so much more. The forgiveness of our sins, the undoing of the curse of Adam through the blessing of Christ. I could talk about this all day. If you're not proclaiming the living Christ, if you're not proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ Jesus with your life, now this cuts to my heart a little bit. Do I truly believe that Jesus Christ has ascended and is on the throne? If I believe that, then why am I afraid of anything that happens? Is Christ king or is he not? Does he rule or does someone else rule? If my loving Savior rules, then I have nothing to fear. If you're not confessing the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord and Savior with your life, God calls us to come to him to confess our sins, our failure to measure up, and He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Guys, this is great news. Forgiveness is available. You do not have to wear the fig leaves of your shame and embarrassment. You don't have to cover yourself up with distractions. You don't have to numb your mind with alcohol or pharmaceuticals or drugs um, or Netflix or social media. You come to Him and you are covered by something greater. The blood of Christ. The actual skin of animals. I'm getting a little carried away and we're going to have to like do part three. If we want to be a Spirit-empowered church, everyone here needs to strive to point to Jesus our Christ through the way we live and through the way we talk, through the way we think and the way we feel. I, I like how Augie brought up the fact that we have young people in here, and he said that they are the future of the church. The reality is they are the church of right now. Our young people should not be separated from the body because that is what's leading further and further to a weakness in our congregations. The the next thing that we must do to be Spirit-empowered is to be in prayer. There's a reason why I keep handing out books on prayer. I don't know if you guys got the hint yet. I'm going to continue to give you books on prayer because we need to be a, prayer, a praying church. And the Holy Spirit empowers prayer. Romans 8.26 says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses because we do not know what to pray as for as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. Ephesians 3.16 says, I pray that He may grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through His Spirit. 
we must be a prayer, a praying people. We must proclaim the word. In the context of prayer, we see the Holy Spirit empowering the proclamation of the word. Acts chapter 4.31 says, When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. If you are a believer, you should be speaking the word of God. This should be your lifeblood. This should be what pours out of your mouth. The Holy Spirit empowers proclamation of the Word. If you have a pastor who can come up here and be so eloquent, but does not have the Spirit of God in him, you're being fed by an unbeliever. This Holy Spirit empowerment of the Word is, is done in the pulpit. It's done on street corners. It's done kneecap to kneecap, one to one, one to another, in coffee shops, at the mechanics, you name it. Are you proclaiming the Word of God to your co-workers? Are you doing it when you get in an inconvenient situation with a barber or some other place? Do we believe that the Word of God is powerful? Do you believe that the Word of God is powerful? Then pray that the Spirit will empower you to proclaim it boldly. Not everyone here is going to get up and start preaching on street corners. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is as you're sitting there talking to someone in a waiting room and they say, oh, I'm struggling so much with my life, da 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 And you can say, you know, Christ is king. Let me tell you why. I have an illustration, but we're going to keep moving because we don't have time. Finally, we begin to praise him for his wonderful works. We see the disciples were empowered to praise God for his wonderful works. They went out into their community singing and praising God. Their excitement for what God was doing overflowed and it prepared the way for Peter's sermon. Your excitement for Christ prepares the way for the hearing of the gospel. Have you thought about that? When you come to church, you have an impact on how other people are listening and hearing the Word of God preached. So if you come in and you begin to be negative about everything, and I'm, that may be your personality, you may be Eeyore in, in your life, I understand, and you may be having a hard time, but can you realize that the things that you do impact those around you? And you can be encouraged and you can be discouraged. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying everybody has to come in here and pretend to be happy. But recognize that you come with expectation. Expectation to hear the Word of God for your particular struggle. That you know that God has a word to speak to you from this. And as you listen carefully, are you going to be ready to receive it? Or are you going to be distracted by the many things and so this overflowing of excitement for what God has done paved the way for Peter's sermon that cut to the heart of 3,000 Jews. Now you may be questioning yourself right now. Maybe you think, I don't know enough to point to Jesus. Or what if somebody asked me something I don't know the answer to? First off, that's never stopped you when you talk about politics. <laughs> Second... Seconds. That was a low blow. Sorry, guys. 
You can be encouraged that the Spirit of Christ is in you and you have all that you need to get started. All that you need to be able to do is point people to Jesus. To explain the gospel hope that is in you. To say there was a man who is fully God named Christ. His name was Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross as a substitution for my sins. I did not deserve it. And you know what happened? God the Father raised him on the third day. And he has ascended and he sits on the throne of heaven. His kingdom reign is eternal. That's who I believe in. That's how I'm comforted when hard things happen. That's all you have to be able to explain. And if you don't know the answer, say, well, I don't know. I do know this. I don't know all the details. I don't know how the Trinity works. I don't know how salvation works necessarily. It's a mystery. But I can tell you what I do know. This. Do you think that the early disciples had all the answers right off the bat? Do you think that they were able to explain everything that God was doing at that time? Did it, do you think that they had an idea of how to deal with the Gentile Jew situation where we have Gentiles becoming believers? They didn't. God had to show them. And so as time progresses, we can become more confident. All you need to be able to do is point to Jesus to explain the gospel hope that is in you. Be able to answer, why do you trust Jesus? Why do you put your hope in Him? If you can answer that, you can share with someone else. Don't let fear get in the way of joyfully witnessing to Christ. And friends, pray for boldness. Pray to be bold. What if someone asks you something you don't know? Well, you can just say, I don't know. But this is what I do know. Conclusion. In the book, back in Acts 1, the question was not, if you will be a witness. The question is, what kind of witness will you be? Will you be the witness to God's wrath upon rebellious sinners? Or will you be an image of who Christ redeems? Will you be a witness that is born of the Spirit? Will you be a witness that is pointing to Christ Jesus? Will you be a witness that is proclaiming the powerful Word of God? Will you be a witness that is praising Him for His wonderful works? Will you be a Spirit-empowered church? That is the question I want to leave you with today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Your Word, Your message would dig deep into the hearts of Your congregation. If there's anyone in this room that does not know You, who has not been born of the Spirit, who has not been converted, Father, I pray that You would convict them today, that You would not let them depart from, you, from this place without making a relationship with You. Father, we, uh, we know that we are to be a witness to the nations. Father, I pray that this church would be a Spirit-empowered church that would have a lasting impact for the kingdom of God, not a temporary vapor that blows away. Father, we want to serve you. We want to honor you. We want to lift high the name of Christ. Lord, we, uh, we recognize that Christ Jesus is ascended, sitting at the right hand of God, and the only reason we can even approach the throne of grace is because of him. Father, we are thankful. We are grateful. 
and we long to be of service to you. Father, make us a beautiful incense to your nostrils through our sacrifice, through our commitment to you. Father, be with this church, be with this congregation, deep by your spirit. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.